Welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I'm joined again by Kyle Glazer. We're recapping an incredibly exciting weekend of playoff baseball this past weekend. Uh, Kyle, you happened to be present uh, for a few games during the Dodgers-Padres series. Obviously, they do get over the hump. We talked about this a little bit in the last show that we did uh, on Saturday. But they do get over sort of that proverbial hump that they haven't been able to get over. They beat the Dodgers here, go into the NLCS. Sort of what was the feeling like? Let's discuss that, you know, like those games a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was remarkable. Um, obviously, I covered that entire series for us here at BA, and I'll be covering the NLCS for us as well. I have to say that game four comeback was was one of the most shocking and memorable comebacks of my professional career. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to be in the press box covering a lot of remarkable games, a lot of remarkable comebacks. It was interesting. You know, we talked about how game three, the Padres, just the energy was absolutely electric in the stadium. Going into game four, it was a very different energy in the stadium. You could feel it. There's a lot more nervousness, like, okay, like we have a chance to close the Dodgers out. Are we really going to do this? And there was a lot of tension. It wasn't the same excitement for the first, you know, couple innings. And then as soon as the Dodgers jumped ahead, Freddie Freeman with that two-run double, the Padres offense just not able to get anything going at all against Tyler Anderson. And then Will Smith adds that sack fly to make it 3 nothing in the seventh. There was, I don't want to say the crowd was dead, but it was, it was kind of getting a little depressing in there. Um, I think there was this awareness that, you know what, we're probably going back to game five at Dodger Stadium with, you know, Julio Urias on full rest against, you know, likely you Darvish on short rest, which is not a favorable matchup. Um, this was the Padres' chance to close it out. The idea of Joe Musgrove, the hometown kid, getting the job done was so exciting. And, and he pitched pretty well. I mean, six innings, two runs. There's a lot of traffic on the bases, but he made big pitches to get out of it. Really, the only damage he allowed was Freddie Freeman's uh, two-run double. But, then when Stephen Wilson came in and the Padres bullpen, which had been so locked down, allowed their first run, it just, it really felt like the game was done. And then the Padres came to life. Absolutely remarkable. And they got a, a couple big assists from the Dodgers and how they deployed their pitchers, but we'll get into that later. I mean, really just a remarkable rally. Once again, starting with the group at the bottom of the order, that's what it's been all postseason for the Padres all of a sudden the steam just came to life and the Padres players and coaches talked about it, how that just really, really, really got them going. People talk about the fans and home crowds and how much impact it has. And it's pretty significant when a crowd is going like that. It was one of those things you're watching it unfold saying, is this really happening? Are they, are they actually going to come back from this? And then when Jake Cronenworth's two out single to center fell in, I mean, it was absolute bedlam. It was absolute pandemonium. And the crowd just was going absolutely nuts. Um, and there were so many little things that helped out getting to that point. Uh, we talk about the Dodgers at the top of the seventh, adding you know another run. Tim Hill coming in, getting the final two outs that inning to keep it at 3 nothing. That was big. One of the big things with the Padres this entire series. They did a good job of holding the line whenever the Dodgers were ahead. Again, the Dodgers won game one, but the Padres kept it close. Dodgers jumped ahead early in game two. Padres held the line. Again, game four, they're down again. Big pitches and big moments. They kept it close. And it all came together in, in that seventh inning. It was remarkable. And then the rain started falling and Blink-182 came on and Pecco singing and rocking in the rain. I mean, <laughs> it was it was absolute madness and bedlam. 
And you could tell the Dodgers were just completely and utterly shell-shocked and deflated. Suarez and Hayter came in one, two, three, then Hayter struck out the side. Even post-game, the Dodgers, you could tell, couldn't believe what had hit them. It happened so fast. I mean, the Padres raised a 3 nothing deficit in the span of five batters in the seventh inning. Now, it looked like it might stall out at a tie. You know, Manny Machado went up and was definitely overswinged a little bit, struck out. Brandon Drury, who just continued to struggle, popped out. But And we'll talk about the Dodgers pitching uh, strategy later, but you know, Jake Cronenworth coming up, two out, two strike, two run single for the, the go-ahead runs. It was remarkable and stunning. And what this meant to the Padres, I wrote about it, I have the article up on uh, baseballamerica.com, just talking about what this means to this team and this franchise, you know, finally beating the Dodgers and doing so in the postseason. You know, they got over the proverbial hump. They finally took care of their greatest tormentors, as I wrote. A remarkable game, a remarkable thrilling series, and very, very, very memorable two days in San Diego, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's a it's a fan base that, you know, has been more and more plugged in over the last, I'd say, seven to eight years as this sort of rebuild has started and then blossomed into, you know, a competitive team. And um, so I think, you know, just watching it from the outside, um, this is a good example of what was considered to be a smaller market team making an investment, coming up with a plan, sticking sort of with some some bit of continuity, which we don't necessarily always see. And they're a good team. They're plugged in. It's brought fans back in. And, um, you know, I think that's a great moment for San Diego in general. But the thing that stuck with me from this game is the Dodgers score um, in the top of the seventh. So, you know, the, the momentum swing was still sort of going toward the Dodgers way and they lock in, you know, obviously show that fortitude, knock it five runs and, you know, lock it down. And then Josh Hader comes in, strikes out the side. Right. So like all the things that you wanted to see sort of gel come together, Juan Soto with a big moment, big hit. I think all that stuff coming together, they really have a lot of momentum going into the NLCS. I don't know if you feel the same or not. Absolutely. Look, the Padres are riding very, very, very high right now. And they should. I mean, they took down a Dodgers team that beat them 14 out of 19 times this year, outscored them a 109 to 47. It's not like the run differential was close. It was a bunch of close wins. The Dodgers took it to them again and again and again. And they'd done so for the better part of the last decade plus. Again, I've written about this extensively. The Dodgers were, were you know, have consistently been a better, more talented, deeper team. And there's definitely a little bit of a mental block. But the Padres came out and you know, they talked about it. They they did a really good job of flushing it and saying what happened in the regular season doesn't matter anymore. We're a new team right now. They, they've been a new team since Bob Melvin sort of ripped into them in Arizona about a month ago. And they came in playing really well. And the Dodgers, we talked about this. There were some some shortcomings in terms of pitcher health. And and now might as well be a good time as any to roll into it. Um, you know, I talked about it in our postseason preview podcast that the situation was ripe given the Dodgers' uncertainty at the back of the rotation and some of the lack of certainty at the back of their bullpen for them to overthink their pitching and do something to shoot themselves in the foot. And voila, here we are. You know, it's 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 kind of become a situation where it's almost predictable. It's like Philip Rivers going down, trying for either a game tying or game winning touchdown, 
he's going to throw an interception. You know he's going to throw an interception. It becomes predictable, and it's sad, but everyone knows it. And that's what the Dodgers and how they manage their postseason pitching has become. They've become Phillip Rivers throwing picks on potential game tying or game winning drives. It's predictable. You know it's going to happen. You just shake your head because, look, I mean, we talked about it on the podcast in Game Three, throwing Tony Gonsolin instead of Tyler Anderson, and then you know get to Game Four, it's pulling Tyler Anderson after five sharp innings. It's the way the entire seventh inning unfolded in terms of when guys were getting ready. A lot of focus was on the fact that Alex Vesia came in with a 1-0 count because Yensei Almonte threw a first pitch to Jake Cronenworth because a sign for a pickoff was missed. But I don't know how apparent this was on TV, but we could see it obviously in the press box as it was unfolding in real time. The reason that happened is Vesia wasn't warming until way, way, way too late. And I'm not saying that in hindsight, like as it was happening, watching Yensei Almonte give up hits to the first couple batters he faced, we're all sitting in the press box going, how is no one up in the bullpen right now? I mean, as it's happening, it's super apparent. They got Vesia warming way, way, way too late. And, and you could see the Dodgers got very discombobulated. They got very flustered. It was, it was not good. And, you know, look, it, this just keeps happening. And the Dodgers have to make a choice. I've spent a lot of time talking about this going into super exhaustive detail. And I'm going to take a step back and, and just kind of big picture, right? The Dodgers as an organization have to make a choice. They can either sit here and hide behind, you know, oh, it's a short series, you know, anything can happen, luck and random outcomes. They, they can sit here and hide behind that. Or they can make the necessary fundamental changes to how they approach their pitching in the postseason from who they start and when they start them to how long they let those starters go to who they choose to use in relief and when they bring them in to how many innings they're asking from their relievers. I mean, it's been year after year after year after year of just bad decisions. And it's not a coincidence. The outcomes keep happening as they do. The Dodgers keep making decisions that actively reduce their chances to win. And again, it's up to the organization. They can sit here and insist that they're doing everything right and they're going to keep doing what they're doing and stick to their process. And it's just a function of the randomness of short series. They can do that and they're going to keep getting the same result again and again and again and fall short. Or they can sit back and take an honest appraisal of how poor their strategy has been. And again, not saying this in hindsight, as it's happening, we see it, we talk about it, we go, what are they doing? And make the necessary changes because otherwise they're going to be known as an organization that had an incredible amount of talent and couldn't get out of its own way in the postseason, continuously shot itself in the foot. And I hope that's not the case because this is a great team of great players. It has been for years and years and years, and they deserve better than to be remembered for that. But that's only going to happen if the organization, you know, front office, management, everyone takes a step back and fundamentally rethinks and reanalyzes and makes meaningful changes to how they approach their pitching strategy in the playoffs, top to bottom, starters, relievers, anyone and everyone. Yeah, I think that's the big question is just who was utilized in what situations, how that set them up. Um, certainly, Tyler Anderson has been great all season long. Um, even taking a step back, we talked about this prior, you know, following game three, going into game four, the decision to, to start Gonsolin, knowing that he really hadn't pitched much since the end of August. He had 
pretty much one start. We don't know about sim games, that sort of thing. But, you know, I'm sure he had thrown a little bit. But if you couldn't get more than two innings out of him in that situation, it was a huge momentum swing. Anderson was ready to go. The other thing is, if you do win this series, let's say that they do start Anderson game three, they win game three, they win game four, they win game five, whatever it is. But the Dodgers end up moving on in the series. You set up better for the NLCS with Anderson going a day early. The guy won 18 games and was phenomenal all year long. This guy was 15, 15, but still, yeah. Was it 15? Oh, sorry. It was 15. I must have misread it the other day. Yeah, 15 with a two and a half ERA. And and look, the the Dodgers, there are a lot of reasons they lost. And give the Padres credit. The Padres beat, let's be very clear. The Padres beat the Dodgers. They absolutely came out and won this series. We have to give the Padres credit. But it also goes back to, again, we we talking about game three a little bit. Because you make that choice and you say, okay, we're going to use Tony Gonsolin, knowing it's essentially going to be, you know, at best a piggyback game, in reality, a bullpen game, and you have to use six pitchers just to get through that game. Then you come back in game four, you have to understand that, okay, because we did that, because we needed to use six pitchers to get through that game, we need Anderson to give us length. And after five innings and only 86 pitches, you have to send him back out for the sixth. The fact that they continue to do the thing where they pull their starters way too early when they're still effective, it's something that's played them back to Rich Hill in game two in the 2017 World Series, and then asking Kenley Jansen to pitch two innings on the second of back-to-back days. It's no wonder he gave up a home run of the night to Marwin Gonzalez. When you do that in game three, you have to go get length from Anderson in game four. And the fact they pulled him after five scoreless innings and 86 pitches, again, just goes back to a fundamental lack of sound strategy when it comes to their pitching. If you're going to do this, that means, hey, Tyler Anderson, we need six, probably seven out of you. And yes, he's been worse the third time through the order compared to first and second time, but he's still been pretty darn good third time through the order, especially when you're talking about him against a Padres team that has struggled with him all year. And and I go back to this was something that we were talking about as it was happening. And post-game, I asked Joe Musgrove, I asked a couple of Padres players this, but, you know, hey, what was the mood on the bench like when you guys were down 2-0 and especially 3-0? And Musgrove didn't hesitate. He said, as soon as they pulled Tyler Anderson, we knew we had a shot. Yeah, I mean, what the other team knows it. Everyone in the stands <laughs> knows it. How do the Dodgers not know it? Yeah. And it's just something where they – and here's the other thing. If they're going to hide behind, oh, it's a data-driven decision – if your data tells you that, that you are more likely to win holding Tyler Anderson to five innings a day after you had to use six pitchers, including most of your A-team bullpen, something is very fundamentally wrong with your inputs, and they need to be re-examined closely. There's just been so many bad decisions, so many avoidable decisions all the way through this run, you know, 2017, 20, 2018, not so much. That Red Sox team was just a great team. They were going to win no matter what, but 2017, 2019, even 2020, when they won using Dustin May twice in three days as an opener and not throwing Tony Gonsolin for 12 days, knowing you had to use him in the NLCS. Then you look at 2021 with Julio Urias. I mean, in relief, it's just every year it's something. And again, they need to make a decision as an organization to fundamentally change what they're doing or they're doomed to keep repeating the same mistake over and over and over again and get the same result over and over and over again. And it's going to be the very definition of insanity. The Dodgers are better than this. They're smarter than this. And it's going to be up to them to make the changes necessary because, I mean, how many times are we going to do this? I'm going to leave it at that. 
I think that's the right way to put it. Let's move on over to the other uh, NL series, um, Braves versus Phillies. Three to you know, three to one series win, um, eight to three victory for the Phillies. But really, from the start of this one, in my opinion, um, almost from the moment Brandon Marsh homers in the bottom of the second, they go up three nothing. They really just held control. I mean, it got a little bit close, but all of their runs were scored. The Braves' runs were scored via solo home runs. And I saw this stat today. And I didn't even realize it. Phillies pitchers during this game threw exactly one pitch with a runner on base. One pitch with a runner on base. It's remarkable that they even scored as many runs as they did in this game. Um, but, you know, in the end, you know, Phillies came out uh, in the sixth. It got a little bit close, um, you know, after Matt Olson's home run. But, you know, Phillies came out in the sixth. They score more runs, uh, sort of death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, and then in the eighth, Bryce Harper puts it away uh, with a big home run uh, off of Kenley Jensen. And it was sort of just pandemonium in, in that park. And he sort of knew that the Braves were done. Um, the thing I want to note about the Phillies is – just how good they set up for playoff baseball. I think I've made this point before. One through nine, competitive at bats. They have a lot of guys in that lineup who can do a lot of things, take a lot of pitches. They wear you down. The other thing is the starting pitching, particularly when you have Nola and Wheeler and you're winning those games. Um, and the way that the series sets up, they can go, you know, Wheeler now, I think on what, six days of rest. Noel's going to be on five days of rest um, to start this series now against the Padres. But it's sort of important that they win those games. I know they won this game sort of bullpenning it um, with Syndergaard. Eflin's been good. We talked about Sir Anthony Dominguez being really good. I guess my question is, is like, do you believe that the Phillies, Phillies bullpen can keep this up? Because I think that is still my biggest question because in a deeper, you know, best of seven series, it's a lot more than just, you know, your, your top two guys being able to shut another team down. Well, I think we have to keep in mind, Ranger Suarez has been pretty good this year. True. And, 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 you know, Noah Syndergaard, there's been a lot that was written about how his fastball velocity was down and, and there were issues there, but he was pretty effective over the course of the year, you know, with the angels and Phillies. I mean, he was essentially a, a roughly league average starter sub four ERA. There's something to be said for knowing how to pitch when your stuff is down. And, and he did a pretty good job of that on the whole. He was, Roughly a, a league average-ish, you know, slightly above league average starter, which is perfect for a number four. I think with the Phillies, look, this is not a deep bullpen, but look, if you can throw out your top three arms or so, you know, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Jose Alvarado, and, and by the way, Brad Hand was was pretty good. Three games in that series, didn't allow a run. He's a talented veteran with a lot of success in his past. I think it's more the Phillies have enough arms in their bullpen in terms of their their top three three guys or so where you feel like okay if we get decent starts you get the run support their offense is capable of giving them can we make it work and, and i think the answer is yes this is gonna be a fun series the Padres have a fantastic fantastic rotation uh, and their bullpen's been locked down the phillies have you know the pitching staff has been really really good we talked about they held a, a cardinals team that has had a good offense at times this year you know to three runs in two games I mean, this Braves offense is pretty dangerous. 
The Phillies held them to a 180, 250, 344 slash line in the series. They kept traffic off the bases. And you talk about the Braves only, you know, hitting three homers and not putting anyone on, not stringing together a rally, not fighting throughout bats. But I think it's more about the Phillies just pitched really, really, really well. Didn't give the Braves that many chances to string anything together. So, I mean, I think at this point, given the way the Phillies are pitching right now, you kind of have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And it's it's going to be a really fun series. And I go back to the Dodgers and Braves, obviously, are the two teams that everyone expected to meet in the NLCS. Again, the Dodgers won 111 games this year. The Braves, once again, the defending World Series champions, won 101 games. And I think you can look at this, and there's a lot of people out there talking about, oh, the wild card format and how that affected guys with the layoff. And it absolutely has an effect, especially with hitters timing. There's no question about that, but I think you have to give the Phillies and Padres credit. These two teams went out and they just beat them. They just straight up beat the Braves. They straight up beat the Dodgers. I mean, neither of these series were actually particularly close in this case. You know, the Braves took game two, the Dodgers took game one, but I mean, for the most part, I mean, again, the Padres really held the Dodgers down all series. The Phillies came out. I mean, game one, it was a one-run game, but they were up the whole way. Game three was a slaughter. And then even game four, you talked about it. I mean, they came out immediately, three, immediate three-nothing. We on the Marsh Homer up four-two. They pull away in the sixth. They add more in the eighth. I mean, the Phillies went out and just straight up beat the Braves. And you can't do that as a fluke. I mean, it was an impressive showing. And at this point, you know, whatever questions we might have about the Phillies and the Padres, I think you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. You can't get this far it just, you know, on luck. This takes talent to play the way they've played, and they've done that. Absolutely. I just wonder how they match up, you know, uh, versus the Padres in this series. But that being said, I did save this uh, and didn't mention it specifically. But in the bottom of the third, huge play in this game. I think it was probably the biggest momentum swing just because of what it is. It's the most uh, one of the most exciting plays in, in all of sports, any sport. JT Romuto's inside the park home run. Um, <laughs> it's funny because Michael Harris didn't take a terrible angle to it. It was just, he honestly reached for it too early. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a, that's a tough play. play. That's it a, is a very that's tough a, that's play. That's a very tough play. And the way the walls exactly. and angles play in Philly I, but, again, I don't see any fault there in Michael Harris. That's just a no, 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 play. No, no, no. <laughs> just saying, if someone didn't happen to be listening to this podcast and for whatever reason has not seen video of the play, just wanted to say what happened. But that being said, Ronald Lacuna Jr. didn't move at all. Like, yeah. at all. And it was the kind of play where, in my opinion, hey, I'm not a professional right fielder. Ronald Lacuna is great, but whatever. It's the kind of play where he should have been moving and shading over and, and covering for backup. And especially when you have an arm like Acuna's, he might have been able to hold these guys at some of these bases. So, like, it's just, it's one of those things where Ramudo got going. And once that ball ricocheted and you saw that Acuna had moved, it was like, yeah, it was an easy call. He was going home and inside the park home run. Um, but kind of a, a really wild moment. I would say one of the more wild moments in a really uh, incredibly sort of uh, wild day of baseball on Saturday. But uh, speaking of that, let's take a quick break here. We'll come right back and we'll discuss the AL series. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. All right. We are back. Um, let's jump into the craziest game of the day. This was pretty much my Saturday, Kyle. Um, you headed out to the ballpark. I was home, and I sat there, and I watched every single pitch of that 18-inning showdown. So I, I have to ask this question off, off from the jump, and I think you you got to watch a little bit of these games and this game in particular. Uh, it was 18 innings. Who I mean, you could have tuned in at any point in time, probably, and seen it, right? Um, was this the closest sweep you remember? I mean, because this game was like, these games, this series in general, it was razor thin between these two teams. It, um, it was, and, and it's a testament to the Mariners, because this is a crazy good Astros team. Um, but you're right, I mean, three games decided by a total of four runs. And I, yeah, look, the Mariners had a shot to win game one that, you know, multiple shots to win game three. They were in this series. This is you know, off the top of my head. It's the closest sweep I, I can remember watching. And, and first and foremost, talk about incredible pitching from both sides. I mean, these are two very dangerous offenses. The final line scores are kind of insane. The Astros through 18 innings gave up only seven hits, three walks, 22 strikeouts. What a job by that Astros staff. Luis Garcia coming in, throwing five innings of shutout ball there. I mean, just tip your cap. And even on the Mariners' side, again, 
18 innings, one run, one walk. They walked one Astros hitter in 18 innings, 20 strikeouts. I mean, these were two fantastic pitching staffs going at it. And Jeremy Pena just jumped on the one mistake that was made. And that was the difference. We saw great defensive plays. We, we saw just really, really, really impressive pitching and defense all around. There were a lot of hit batters. I, I should note that. There were three walks uh, on the Astros side and one on the Mariners side. But there were a lot of hit batters in this game. But nonetheless, talk about tense. Talk about exciting. And you're right. I mean, this was a, a razor-thin series. I mean, Jordan Alvarez took over games one and two as great hitters and great players do and are capable of. And then, I mean, talk about battle attrition in game three. It was it was remarkable. Um, I think you you come away from this saying, look, this Astros pitching staff, which we knew was really, really, really good, they're scary good. And you also come away with it saying, you know what? This is a really good Mariners team. They're going to be back. For them to hang with the best team in the American League like they did just speaks volumes about the team they've built and how bright the future is ahead. Yeah, and we could talk about that a little bit. I wanted to just touch briefly on the Mariners. Um, what an unbelievable playoff atmosphere. And for all 18 innings, um, if there was one game that you could have wished you could be at, I think we actually talked about this jokingly, saying if we only had a private jet to fly all over the, the place for these games. This is probably, you know, the one game is like a neutral observer. I know you, you know, you grew up around San Diego. There's a moment there, but... For me, I, I, if I could have been there at that game, just that environment, uh, whether it went nine or 18 innings or whatever, um, how loud, plugged in, pitch to pitch, each moment the entire crowd was, um, that's great. And I, I really do I really do mean this. You, you hope that the Mariners continue to be a successful organization, get into the playoffs, and have an opportunity to win because that is a playoff atmosphere that you do want uh, to experience and, and to see on television and to have baseball and that sort of uh, environment where folks are so plugged in and care that much because that was great. That sort of added to the intrigue of everything is, is how loud all of these moments were throughout the game. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, they did a great job of, strategically attacking batters. I know it didn't work out. We discussed that a little bit, you know, about the Jordan Alvarez thing. It was talked about ad nauseum. Um, they really got to Jose Altuve, particularly in this game with high inside fastballs. They were able to locate it, able to get him to chase pitches that were really like easy takes and out of the zone. And, I, you know, credit to the Mariners being able to do that because they sort of nullified, I would say, you know, Houston when it comes down to their ultimately the their biggest threat outside of Jordan Alvarez uh, within Jose Altuve. That's no discredit or knock on, on Alex Bregman. We've just seen Altuve do so many things over the years and it's such a big spot and he's so dangerous even when he's on base. So um, for that reason, I thought uh, there's some credit that, that, that was due there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. If you had something to say. No, I was going to say, I mean, look, this is a really good Mariners pitching staff. We saw that. I mean, Luis Castillo gave him a great start in game two. You know, Andres Munoz is a great pitcher who just, again, I mean, it's a really good Astros offense. This this is a really, really fun series. Two really good teams who should be back. And you mentioned the atmosphere. I mean, the fans in the Pacific Northwest are as loud as anywhere you'll find. Chicago, New York, Boston, take your pick. 
what Seahawks games are like, what Mariners games are like. Even you go down to Oregon, what you know, University of Oregon football games, you put that up against Alabama, Georgia, anywhere you want. I mean, the Pacific Northwest gets loud, it gets rowdy. They are as diehard of sports fans as anyone. And they've been waiting a long time for this, 21 years since the last home playoff game in Seattle. It was amazing. And that's what was, you know, so fun about so much this NLDS is how many of these teams, it had been a while. The Phillies hadn't had a home playoff game since 2011. The Padres hadn't had a home playoff game with fans since 2006. The Mariners, 2001. It was a long time coming for all these fan bases. And they showed out. They were loud. The atmospheres were unbelievable. And it was just cool to see. Absolutely. And uh, just mentioning this on the Astros, um, I think it's really interesting. Remember, when we talked about this in our sort of uh, our divisional preview podcast, but the depth of the Astros starting pitching really ended up being sort of the difference, their ability to bring in Louis Garcia, but also Hunter Brown um, throughout these 18 innings, you know, technically if we look at it from what we considered or what I had mentioned as their seven starters, um, they pitched 13 innings of this game. Um, between the six that you got from Lance McCullers, the five that you got from Louis Garcia, and then you got a pair of innings from Hunter Brown. Um, so I, I just think when you think about that, and then you take a look at the way this series now sets up with the first game of the ALCS, not even starting until Wednesday, they're now going to have Justin Berlander on seven days of rest, you know, um, Framber Valdez on six, and it's going to be the same for McCullers and Garcia and if they do get into a seven game series, whether it's with Cleveland or the Yankees, it's going to be very interesting because they're actually going to have guys where, you know, they're actually going to have guys on full rest as opposed to the Yankees who are probably going to have to pitch a couple of guys, maybe on three days rest. They may have to pitch Garrett Cole in like a game seven situation. Um, so I think it's just interesting sort of how all of this sets up um, just because of how deep they are but also their ability to sort of um, finish off the Mariners in three games. That that combination could potentially be lethal and gives them uh, a big strategic advantage, I think, going into that series, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And then we talk about the Yankees and Guardians. Um, that was a remarkable comeback by the Guardians in, in game three. Again, we talked about it, how this team just never says die. They consistently wear you down, create at-bats. And the Yankees made a very curious decision with uh, their bullpen usage in that game, to say the least. And there's clearly uh, mixed messages when, when Aaron Boone says Clay Holmes was only available in the emergency and Clay Holmes says he was ready to go. Um but then, you know, the Yankees came back last night and Garrett Cole, this is this is what you want your ace to do. You need to put a stop. Your season's on the line. You're on the road against a team that, you know, has shown they can get to their your pitchers. You need him to go deep. And Garrett Cole did it. He delivered. Didn't get out of sorts with the Josh Naylor home run celebration. He focused up, went about his business and at the end of the day won the game. That's better than any other sort of retribution. Yeah, you can celebrate your home run, but look up at the scoreboard. I beat you. So, yeah, I mean, that's something where where if you're the Yankees, that's what you paid Garrett Cole to do. He went out and did it. And now we've yeah. got game five tonight. Like I said, I I picked Guardians in five. I'm, I'm sticking with it. But it's been a, a fun series so far. Again, this Guardians team we've talked about base running defense, their ability to fight and string together at bats and, and quality at bats and hits and walks and, and just make an opponent work, not give away any outs is is really, really impressive. And I think that both well. And we've seen that play out, too. I'm looking forward to game five again. It's it's going to be fun. We'll see what happens. I, Jeff, you would pick the Yankees going into this series. 
Are you sticking with it? Yankees a game five tonight. Yeah, did I pick the Yankees? Yeah, right. you did. I, okay. We went different. Right, I, I picked what? the Guardians, and you picked the Yankees. All right. I don't even know how I did them. I think I picked against the Phillies, so I, I'm sure I already have one loss. Have I we're won we're both series? one and two. We both. We oh, all, I won this time. Well, no, we both picked the Astros, Dodgers, and Braves. Okay. So you and I are both one and two so far. <laughs> the only thing we picked differently was I picked the Guardians and you picked the Yankees. So. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I, I. Uh, I came into this thinking that I picked the Guardians and was like, I kind of think the Yankees are going to win tonight. So lucky for me, I'm absolutely sticking with it. I think that environment in the Bronx, um, I, I think it, you know the starting pitching, there's no advantage there. We'll see how the bullpen's used. I would argue there is an advantage. Jameson Tyone versus you know Aaron Savali is what might be a bullpen game. I actually think it is a heavy Yankees advantage. That's okay, I would be give the it to Tyone, thing. but he hasn't pitched great. And I you know I know how uh, I, I know how that can get in your head if he's not uh, pitching well in New York, right? They can get right on you quick. But we'll see what happens there. I I, I think it was funny the the Naylor home run situation. It was entertaining and goofy as like a a, a neutral observer. I kind of laughed at it. Um, they didn't end up winning. And Cole kind of laughed it off afterward in his, uh, you know, kind of like stoic Garrett Cole kind of a way. But they kind of tried to press him on it. He was like, oh, whatever. It's funny. I don't care. Which I thought was good for him. It was like, I don't even care. We won the game. You know, I pitched well. Uh, here I am. I'm your ace. So um, it'll be fun. And and I think, uh, you know, the Houston Cole versus Houston, Yankees, Houston, that, that would be kind of interesting. That said, could be the Guardians. Be great. We're big Guardians fans here. I picked them early in the season, so I like them. I'm not going to argue against that one. But thank you for joining us again for another playoff podcast here on Baseball America. I'm Jeff Ponce. That's Kyle Glazer. We'll see you tomorrow. 